Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Welcome to Crosspoint uh, once again. So glad each and every one of you are here with us. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, the passage that we are going to look at this morning is in the book of James in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking, uh, working out of the passage in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And so if you have a physical Bible with you, uh, that would be awesome. You can open that up and follow along. If you have a digital version of the Bible, that's great too. You can follow along. Um, If you don't have either of those, I think there are Bibles in the information rack in front of you. You can grab one. Um, We would encourage you to do that. It's awesome for all of us to be able to see, like, the actual words written on the page so we can track and we can hear what James, really what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us uh, through that text. And uh, as you're getting situated there, uh, just to kind of bring us all up to speed, maybe you're new with us this morning, maybe you haven't been the past few weeks, Um, we started this series a number of weeks ago, Walking Through the Letter of James, and it's titled Living the Kingdom. And we've been on this journey for a while now here at Crosspoint to embrace and to understand and to fully run after what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Um, We can ascribe all kinds of things to God and our relationship with him, but one thing we struggle with very often is recognizing that we are citizens of a kingdom and Jesus is our king, which means he calls the shots in our lives. And so this kind of all started uh, a while back as we were walking through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus kept talking about the kingdom and kept nailing home the importance that that we need to recognize Jesus as our king and us as part of that kingdom. And then we took some time to kind of walk through what are the building blocks? What are the necessary pieces, the things that scripture makes really clear of God's kingdom and what we need to know about it? And our movement to James just really is the Holy Spirit leading us to kind of the next step down the road, and it's in, because so much of James helps us know how to live out these kingdom values, how to actually function as people who are a part of that kingdom. He's so great, he just lays it out practically, he gives us very clear information, and he gives us all these real-world examples of things that are going on in our life, um, and how to live as good citizens of God's kingdom in the middle of those. And so James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. His dad was Joseph. Jesus' dad was God. And uh, and so he got to spend a lot of time with Jesus. He was also a disciple of Jesus. So he spent a ton of time hearing about this kingdom, and he had a close proximity with Jesus throughout uh, Jesus' life. And after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven, James was a part of the crew that really got the church in Jerusalem moving forward. And so uh, him and and Peter and eventually Paul and those guys, they kind of got the church up and running. Eventually, it came to a point in that process, if you read throughout the New Testament, that people like Peter and Paul, they ended up leaving Jerusalem, and they ended up going to other places in the known world to spread the gospel and to plant churches and that kind of thing. James was one of the people who ended up staying in Jerusalem, and he basically became just this super faithful, steady pastor to these people. And most of these people were Jewish people who then had recognized Jesus as Messiah and given their life over to him. And, uh, you know, you, as you study this stuff, you can kind of find extra writings that kind of give you a bigger picture maybe of these 
people, these characters that we look at in Scripture, and it seems like most people agree that James was pretty universally loved. Maybe he's the only pastor that is universally loved. I don't know. But he was, like, pretty universally loved by his church family. Like, people cared about him a lot. He, they knew he cared about them. Um, and they kind of all saw him as, like, this father figure, especially as time went on. And uh, I think some of that certainly is due to the wise and, and helpful words that he spoke Certainly some of it was due to his proximity to Jesus, uh, but ultimately what we find in James' writing and in his life is that he proved that his words were trustworthy because of how he acted. How he treated these people in this church proved to them that his words can be trusted. Uh, and that's really a big, big theme in the letter of James is that what we do, the actions that we take, the things that come out of our life, they paint a pretty clear picture of whether or not we can be trusted, of, of what our inner life looks like. We recognize that our relationship with Jesus is not dependent on actions or good works. It is through faith in Jesus and faith alone. But James makes it pretty clear that if all that's being produced out of your life is things that look nothing like Jesus, then we should take a hard look at that and ask the question, is my life, is my faith alive and active, or is it sick, dying, or dead? And he talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about that a few weeks ago when James basically says, if you show me a faith, a trust in Jesus that has nothing that looks like Jesus being produced out of it, I'll show you a faith that's dead. And he starts to give all of these examples. And last week, Travis talked about the tongue, and he talked about our words and how our words have huge power to either destroy or to bring life. And I think Travis said like this exact phrase where he said, the passage that we read last week is basically like, exhibit A, if you have a destructive tongue, then probably your faith is pretty dead. And, I, and by the way, if you have not listened to last week, you should definitely go do that. It was ridiculous. It was really, really good. Um, but today what we're going to be talking about is kind of a continuation of that. If last week, exhibit A is a destructive tongue of a dead faith, today is kind of exhibit B, living under the wrong kind of wisdom or values is maybe a really good indicator that our faith is sick, dying, or dead. As we're going to find out today, James says in this passage that we're going to look at that there are really just two ways, just two ways when it comes to living in this world. And he describes them as two kinds of wisdoms and that we need to be really, really careful which one we choose to let run our life. He lays out here that not all wisdom is created equal and not all wisdom is actually good for us. And I think that's really important because you know we know like wisdom is, is our knowledge and understanding applied to situations, but just culturally and especially in the church, when we hear the word wisdom, at least for me, maybe this isn't a trip up for you, I, it always equates something good, always. So if like, you think about it like in a story or in literature, if someone is described as wise or they have wisdom, they're, they're a good guy, right? Like people are going to learn from them, they're seeking them out, they usually have like special information or, or maybe a certain amount of power. We hear that word used a lot like within the walls of the church. It kind of takes up a lot of real estate in the pages of the Bible to be honest. And uh, it, we talk about it a lot, and it's really, really important. And then even in, like, church subculture, so if you're kind of new to the church scene, you're like, I don't, you're not really going to understand what this is, maybe. But for those of you who have been here a while, this will make total sense. Um, wisdom, or being wise, is kind of the catch-all phrase when a person doesn't really know if something actually is right or wrong, if it's not black or white. 
And I feel like, I'll just give you an example, like for my parents, if they didn't know exactly whether to say yes or no to be about something, it always just kind of fell to, well, like you should just be wise about it then. Like I have lots of examples. Like I wanted to go on this road trip with my friends to this like Christian music festival because it was lame in the 90s. And I wanted to go to this thing and it was me and three friends. We were just out of high school. We had no idea what we were doing. We borrowed my, my mom's van. We were gonna drive halfway across the country. And it was almost as if my mom was like, well, this doesn't say anywhere that I should say no to this ask. Kind of wish that it did, but be wise, you know? Like, as, as, do you understand what I'm saying there? Like, I, I would say, hey, my friends are having a big bonfire, and inside, she's like, well, I know what happens at a high school bonfire, but be wise. It becomes like kind of this catch-all. And um, I think what can happen when we have so many diluted uh, definitions, I guess, of what wisdom is, when it has all of this baggage, it loses its punch, and we don't treat it with the seriousness and the significance that the Bible treats it with. And so we need to understand that not all wisdom is created equal and that we need to be really careful what kind we are allowing in our life. Just because something seems like a good idea or the world around us tells us it's a good idea or we feel like it's the right thing to do doesn't mean that it is, even if it seems to be okay or even if it gets called wise from an outside source. James makes it clear there's two kinds of wisdoms. One will lead to destruction and devastation the other is the one that brings life. And both are proved by what comes out of them, much like James' own life. So let's, let's pick up reading in chapter three, right at the beginning there, verse 13. He starts off this passage by asking a question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who, who actually knows what's going on here? Who actually has that wisdom and understanding? It says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Okay, so right out of the gate, James is immediately subverting our expectations of what success is, of what power is, even what intelligence is, because James recognizes that we live in a world, and it's so important for us to recognize, we live in a world that is obsessed with self-promotion. We know that to be true, right? We live in a world that is obsessed with promoting ourselves in some way, shape, or form. I'm not big on the whole like, this is the worst it's ever been and things are so terrible right now and they used to be so good. I'm not, not big on that because things like this prove the opposite. If you go all the way back to the very, very beginning of humanity, Adam and Eve, they ate the apple, they rebelled against God. Why? Because they wanted to promote themselves in their way on their terms to something that they shouldn't have been. Now, as time has gone on, we have figured out more effective and efficient ways to promote ourselves to the point where we do live in a day and age right now where it is a click of a button away. Some dumb video that happened to get captured on your phone and all of a sudden you're famous for two weeks, right? Like we live in a culture that is obsessed with self-promotion. We all fall into that trap in one way, shape, or form, and we gotta recognize that. But in a culture that is obsessed <clears throat> with self-promotion, this is what James says to do. He says to limit our influence and to be meek people. That's exactly what Travis said last week, if you were here last week. That one of the things that God calls us to, one of the ways that we live in godly wisdom, as one of the ways we are good citizens of his kingdom, is that in a world that says promote yourself, promote yourself, promote yourself, we make the conscious decision to limit our influence and let him do the thing that only he can do. 
Another word maybe for it is a word that you would recognize, um, especially if you've been coming here like any amount of time because it gets brought up all the time. That's the word humility. Real godly wisdom is built on the foundation of humility, recognizing, seeing clearly who God is and who we are, not thinking too much of ourselves, but recognizing exactly who Jesus is. Humility is a self-subduing, self-limiting of our influence, gentle spirit that is always willing to deny itself. Before we ever get into the details, if we want wisdom that looks like God, it has to be built on humility. If we start from arrogance, we are not gonna get very far. Verse 14, though, he gives us the opposite, the one that probably more likely more of us uh, can resonate with. So he says, if you're wise and understanding, it's because of your humility, your meekness of wisdom. But then in verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So James says that if your motivation for what you do, the things you know, the way that you live your life, if your motivations for those things are things like jealousy, bitterness, selfishness, ambition, which is like a mad grab for power, if that's what is motivating us, there is no way, there's no universe where we can look at ourselves and call ourselves wise. We can call ourselves understanding of the values of God's kingdom. If we are motivated by the wrong things, we are not wise, we don't understand what living in this kingdom is really all about. James makes it really clear here that if our motivations are off, everything else to follow will also be off. And we'll probably be able to tell. Let me, let me give you an example um, that might just illustrate kind of what I'm talking about here a little bit better. Uh, I am a huge, huge fan of uh, like an off the beaten path, hidden gem type experience. That's like my favorite, right? There's nothing cooler, there's nothing more beautiful to me than me and my family maybe going in the back country or finding like a, a really cool like secluded hike or waterfall or vista or whatever and be able to go up there and just take in all of the natural beauty and be able to do it completely isolated from other people. There's nothing cooler than that for me. And vice versa, there's nothing that makes me die inside quicker than embracing and, and viewing and taking in all this natural beauty and then looking down and seeing a whole bunch of sweaty tourists in the foreground. Like, and I get it, I'm one of them, so I'm not like casting judgment, but nothing kills the moment quicker than that for me. I hate it. Like, I, I would rather die than to go up to Pinecrest over Labor Day weekend. I, I would die, and if that's your thing, fine. Like, that's cool, like, you enjoy it. And you think I'm being dramatic, I'm not. I would rather die than go up there. I hate it, it makes me wanna throw up just talking about it. <laughs> to go up there and to see this beautiful lake with these beautiful mountains and then you look at the shore and there's like a billion people, and you should stop talking, a billion people <laughs> grilling whatever they want and all of this and it just ruins it for me. It absolutely ruins it for me and it's one of my, it's one of my tensions with living here in California because there is so much awesome natural beauty in this state. There's so many cool things to go and see in this state, but the state makes them really accessible to people if you're willing to pay for it, which is a whole nother conversation. And there's a lot of people who live here. And so it feels like no matter where you go, it's really hard to find a destination or a spot or a place where you're not gonna see anybody else. 
And it's a tension that I have here because I so enjoy it when you're able to get away and not have anyone else in the mix. And so this happened to me a few years ago. We were up near Angel's Camp with uh, some pastors from this church at like a pastor's retreat thing that we were at up there. And we had a little bit of extra time one day and so we decided to kind of all pile in a car and we just kind of drove off on these back windy roads just trying to find something, some kind of adventure. We had no real plan. And we're, we're, we're driving up over this hill and there's this little turnoff where you can go park and like a, a viewpoint where you can look out over one of the lakes up there. And we get out, we're looking, we're like, oh, this is cool. And then we notice like, oh, there's this path on the other side of the road that kind of snakes around the side of this hill. We're like, hey, let's go check it out. And so we go over there and it is like lush and green and beautiful and secluded. You had to go through a few gates. I'm assuming we weren't trespassing. The sign said you could go in, just close the door behind you. So I took that as free license to go through. And we went through and there was these beautiful views. The trail was easy. There were these cool rock formations that almost looked like something out of like a photo from Ireland or something. And eventually the trail kind of wound up to the top of this hill where you could look down over the lake and it was gorgeous. It was like such a cool experience. I really, really enjoyed it. And there was no one else there. And so I registered it in my brain. I was like, oh, I need to bring Megan and the kids here like the first chance I get. So this was in March of that year. Fast forward a few months and Mother's Day rolls around. And I think, hey, this would be a perfect kind of Mother's Day surprise to take Megan and the kids up to the spot because I remember it being so cool. And it was kind of a hard year. We were in a rough patch with like our foster care stuff and she just needed like a win. She needed something to just be, to have an enjoying experience, right? And so after church, we piled everyone in the car. We, we drove as quick as we could up to Jamestown and we decided, hey, we'll stop and we'll pick up Mexican food um, or we'll eat Mexican food rather, and then we'll go on this hike. And so we stop at this restaurant. I didn't do a ton of research. We walked in, of course it's slammed because it's Mother's Day. And so we wait, we wait, we finally get a table and we sit down, we open up the menus and we're like, oh, we're not paying this much for this kind of food. Like, no way. And, and I was like, that's just like, that's just too expensive. We're not gonna do that. But rather than, Megan and I both struggle a little bit with confrontation. So rather than just like closing the menu, standing up and leaving, we're like, what's the cheapest thing on here we can buy so that we don't feel really guilty about just walking out of here? And so we, we, we find the cheapest thing, and lo and behold, it's nachos, okay? They weren't great, but don't worry, they got put in a styrofoam uh, to-go box because everything saves really well in a styrofoam to-go box, right? And so we asked them, hey, could you, should you pack it up? We'd like to go. So they give them to us, and I'm like, okay, strike one, but we can recover from this, no problem. We drive up to the spot, and we park, and I look over, and the first thing I notice is, ooh, it is not green over there anymore. It has become a nice, disgusting shade of brown <laughs> from the heat and from the lack of rain and stuff like that. Second thing I notice is that the grass or the plant life is a lot taller than it was the last time I was here. And then as we got going, the third thing I noticed is it was that time of year where it was like shedding all of its seeds. You know, those little stickers that like get everywhere when you walk through it. And so as we started along this trail, my kids are like wading through grass that's like up to here. There's like stickers all over here. We're trying to carry a baby. We're, we're lugging this disgusting thing of nachos up there. And it's hot and it's sweaty. It looks nothing like it did the first time I went through there. It was not an enjoyable experience. We finally made our way back up to the top. I think we even got lost part of the way there, but we finally made it up toward this hill. We spread out this blanket, which I still think has stickers in it, like to this day. We spread out, we just tried to make the most of it. We popped open those nachos and they were nice and sweaty from being in that styrofoam thing the whole time. 
And I just remember thinking, this sucks. Like, this is terrible. This is a, such a terrible experience. And it was, and everyone agreed, and in fact, to this day, my kids refer to that as the pokey hike. And, and they're like, hey, remember when, you, remember when you took us to the pokey hike? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact sharing the story is Abby's idea. I was telling her about the message, and she was like, you should tell the story of the pokey hike. I was like, all right, all right. And so it's seared into their brain, a deep point of trauma for them, I think. But um, it was not a good experience. Megan was trying to have a good attitude. But you know what was the most disappointing thing about that entire experience to me, in hindsight? It's how I acted. I was so cranky, and I was so grumpy, and I was so impatient with my wife and kids. And what became really clear through how I acted, in hindsight, is that my motivation wasn't to give Megan a really enjoyable experience. My motivation was actually selfish. It was so that I would feel good about doing something nice for her, which means I got really bent out of shape when it didn't seem to work. I took it personally, which means I felt like really attacked when my kids were like crying out, Dad, help me, I'm drowning in this tall grass, you know? When I think back of it, I'm like, every step of that process, my motivation was out of whack. My motivation was selfish. Even though what I was doing seemed nice, and maybe I even could convince myself that it was nice, my motivation was wrong. I was lying to myself and everyone around me. See, I think the exact same thing is true in how we choose to live our lives. If we have wrong motivation, there's no way we can expect to live out godly wisdom. There's no way. If we are motivated by things like bitterness and jealousy and selfishness and power and ambition, all the characteristics of the world, it's a type of wisdom, James says, but it is not one that we want. It is not one that we want to embody. In fact, he has some very, very harsh language about it. This is what he says in verse 15. He said, this wisdom that's motivated by selfishness and ambition and power and all the things that look attractive to the world, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not the wisdom that you want as a follower of Jesus. He says, but it is earthly, listen to this, unspiritual and demonic. Whoo. <laughs> we gotta pause there for a second, right? Earthly unspiritual, and he goes so far as to say it is demonic. I have read that verse dozens of times, and it has never hit home so deeply as it has this past time. When we function out of pride and arrogance and selfishness and trying to grab power, it's not like it's just a lesser version of wisdom. It's not like it's just not great, but, you know, James says it is demonic, it is in service to the very kingdom that stands in opposition to the kingdom that we're supposed to be representing. It is no joke. It is a big deal. And it is a type of wisdom that is all too easy to fall into because it looks very familiar. But we as followers of Jesus have to avoid it at all costs. Okay, but... We might be asking, I get it, I get what you're saying, it's bad, it's wrong, I can't let my motivations be bitterness and selfishness and jealousy and, and power, but sometimes I don't even know what my motivations actually are. I don't know if any of you else feel that. Sometimes I get in a situation, I'm like, I'm not even sure what my motivation was getting here. Like for instance, in that story I just told, I thought my motivation was to give Megan a really good uh, experience, but my actions proved that it actually was something different. 
And that's exactly what James addresses here next. He tells us exactly what is produced from living this type of wisdom. And James is a genius for doing this because it allows us to kind of reverse engineer, look at what's being produced from our lives and from our churches and from our societies and know exactly what kind of wisdom it's coming from, know exactly what kind of motivation it's coming from. He says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, where these motivations exist in our life, this is what will come out of it. There will be disorder in every vile practice. There will be disorder and division and hatred and parting ways over the dumbest things and every kind of vile practice. That's such a big term, you know, every kind of evil that you could imagine, the secret kind, the obvious kind, the kind that's easy to justify, the kind that we might look at and just hate that we would ever act out in that way. James says that if our motivations are things like jealousy and selfishness, this every time is what is going to be produced in our life and in our world. And it does not take long for us when we look around at the world around us, last few weeks even, <laughs> and see this proven so incredibly, right? Like we look around and we see all this disorder in places like Afghanistan and in the political realm. We see all these vile practices that not only are tolerated, but are actually encouraged and even championed. Can I just tell you like a story of ex like a perfect example that happened this past week of where human earthly demonic wisdom will land us as a culture and as a society? There's this website, I'm not gonna say its name. If you know, you know, but there's no reason to like throw it out if you don't know. But there's this website that exists that it's, it used to be for other things, but basically its whole platform is to host explicit content. And it allows individuals to upload explicit content of themselves and get paid to distribute that content to other people who can subscribe to them or who can buy it like in one-time payments. And, it's, and it has blown up in popularity over the last couple years. And there are a lot, a lot of really young men and women who are making a ton of money exploiting themselves for the benefit of strangers who are totally willing to pay as much as they want to be able to get that explicit content. That's the reality that we live in. This last week, there was this crazy, like back and forth, like whiplash thing that happened, where this company came out and said, we are no longer going to allow explicit content on our website. You can't post it, you can't upload it, and you can't purchase it. And a lot of people around the world were like, awesome. Like, there, there's so much hurt that comes from a platform like that. And there's so much value that is being missed in a person's life on a platform like that. And so a lot of people were really excited about it. Like two or three days later, the next story that pops up in the news about this website is them saying, haha, just kidding. There was such a huge outcry, such a huge backlash of both content creators and the people who are purchasing the content that that business decided, oh, we're going to pull back all of these guidelines that we had laid out which removed a major credit card company from being able to be used on their website. Do we see how heartbreaking that is? That they're, that essentially this culture, this community of people who are involved with this site said, we are good with exploiting ourselves and other people for the sexual gratification of strangers. We're good with that. That sounds like a good plan to us. 
That is heartbreaking. And there's no, I'm not casting judgment on those people. Obviously, there's a brokenness. They need to understand their value. They need to understand where fulfillment comes from. But that is heartbreaking. And what a clear example of just an evil, evil thing that exists in the world that so many people are getting sucked into on both sides of the spectrum. It's heartbreaking. And it's exactly, we shouldn't be surprised, it's exactly what comes out of people who are functioning out of the motivation of selfishness and jealousy, and it's unspiritual and earthly and demonic, and we should have no part of it. But we as Christians, we need to pause here for a second, because we're pretty good at throwing stones at other people, right? It's pretty easy for us to look at a situation like that and be like, how heartbreaking. It's pretty easy for us to look at a situation like what's happening in Afghanistan and the Taliban and saying, hey, like, I can totally see how the dots are connected over there. Look, those, those leaders of the Taliban, they have selfish ambitions. They want power. And look at all, like, the, the disorder and all the vile things that they're doing to the poor people of Afghanistan. And that's true. It's easy to see. It's easy for us to see in whatever politician we happen to hate more than the other politician to see how their selfish ambitions and their jealousy and their wrong motivations lead to hurting people. It's like really easy for us to look at like a Jeff Bezos or something like that and be like, yeah, what a selfish person. Look at that person. Look how he hurts other people. But I think as Christians, as a church, we gotta pause for a second because Jesus would always have us look inward too. Where are our motivations wrong? in our life and in our churches is disorder, all kinds of evil that's hidden and obvious, is that what is being produced out of our lives? And, so, and I actually think for a lot of us, it's not the really overt stuff, it's the stuff that I kind of co I coin as conventional wisdom that stands in opposition to godly wisdom. When I say conventional wisdom, like conventional wisdom is, is something that is agreed upon from the culture, right, from the group of people. Everyone's on the same page that this is a pretty good thing. I think we in North America specifically, we are so good at melding conventional wisdom with biblical wisdom and actually diluting biblical wisdom in the process. Because that's what this whole, this was this whole country is founded on. I'm not like bashing on America, but it's just the reality, right? They took a value that we see in scripture, that we see of Jesus' kingdom, kind of added our own twist to it, you know, made it appealing to the masses, and then imposed it on everybody else. That's exactly why some of our ethics and values look kind of like the values of the kingdom, but diluted. Because we have settled for conventional wisdom. Church, I think that that is one of the sneakiest things that the devil has ever done to dilute the power that the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives and in our churches. Because it seems okay, and it seems like enough, but it's not. There's all kinds of examples, right? Like we're willing to say like, hey, we gotta be generous with what we do. We gotta be generous with our money. I mean, as long as we can get a tax write-off about it, and as long as we can take care of us and ours before we do all of that. We, we read scripture and see Jesus say like, turn the other cheek, like pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies. Yeah, we will, but like we can't be a doormat about it, right? I know in my own life, when I, when I read the scriptures and, and there's such a high value on those that are vulnerable and those that don't have parents, which is what led us into the realm of foster care, I have had conventional wisdom and people come and say to me, Conventional wisdom is that you've done your part, don't risk any more. Don't risk any more for your kid's life or for your life or for what's going on in 
your ministry or whatever. You've done your part, don't risk anymore. That's conventional wisdom that waters down the mission of the gospel, radical wisdom. You know, let's just say this. Conventional wisdom says that every single Afghan believer over in Afghanistan should get the heck out of there. It's better to be alive than dead, right? Delete the apps on your phones, don't go talk to the Taliban, stay as far away from them as possible and get out. And while some are doing that, and honestly, I trust that they've had a serious conversation with God about that, thank God that there are people who will not budge from the mission that God has given them and are going to the very people who are trying to kill them to share the love of Jesus, to share the gospel with them. We have settled for conventional wisdom, and it's just a poor disguise for what James is talking about here, an earthly wisdom that's unspiritual and that's actually really demonic. But there's really good news because James gives us a clear picture of exactly the type of wisdom that we are to go for. In verse 17, it says this, but the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God, the wisdom of the kingdom is first pure. It's unadulterated, it's undiluted, it trusts God, it is willing to be radical. It has a singular focus, which then leads it to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Oh man, couldn't we use a whole bunch of people who are open to reason, right? Full of mercy, full of mercy and good fruits, the good actions that come out of our lives. It is impartial and it is sincere. Does this sound familiar to us? It should, we read it just a few minutes ago in the service. This is almost word for word lifted from the Beatitudes. When, when, God, when Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. These are the things that come out of godly wisdom. And it does a lot of really incredible things in the world in which we live, which is how James ends the passage this morning. In verse 18, he says this, and a harvest of righteousness is sown. A harvest of right living, a harvest of people's hearts being changed and being made, brought to life. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is what comes out of people who are unwavering in their commitment to godly wisdom. These two guiding worldviews, these two types of wisdom that James throws out here, they couldn't look more different and they couldn't stand in greater contrast with each other, but it's so easy for us to just think of them at least overlapping. And so as we wrap up, I wanna, I wanna throw one more picture out that I think really really clearly describes the contrast between these two ways of living and how we can't just let both of them in our life. I was listening to this pastor earlier this week and he drew this connection between these two kinds of wisdoms that James is talking about here. He drew a connection to a picture that we get to see in the book of Revelation. This was a, this was a vision that was given to a man named John who was stranded, exiled on this island. And it was God gave him this vision of how the whole world would end and begin anew. And from Revelation 12 to Revelation 14, we get this really interesting picture in contrast. First is of this dragon that rises. It's described as red and powerful and angry, and its tail, sweep the, its tail sweeps the stars out of the sky, and, it, and it, gets what it, it gets what it wants through power and through manipulation and through violence. And it's in active opposition between 
itself in the people of the world, humanity. That's who it's going after. And as it sets itself up on one side, it describes it on a, on a beach in the sand, and as it sets itself up, it looks an awful lot like the type of wisdom that James is describing as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's selfish, it's bitter, it's only out for power, and it's described as that serpent from the garden, the devil. And John, as, this, as the story continues on, he turns his attention to the other direction, and he sees on a mountain, in contrast to this dragon, it's all about power in its own way. In the contrast, he sees a lamb on the hill, a lamb that's meek, a lamb that had been slain, a lamb that represents the gentleness and the peace and the mercy that we just read about. And that lamb is Jesus. And this guy, as he was thinking about this and as he was talking about this, he said, maybe another way can put it is there's two kinds of wisdoms, but there's also two kinds of ways. Which are we gonna choose? Are we gonna choose the way of the dragon? Or are we gonna choose the way of the lamb? I think that is a huge question that each and every one of us need to ask. I think as we sit here and as we ask the question, you know, what, what are we to do as we walk out of this place this morning? I think really there's just one question that we need to ask ourselves. And that is what kind of wisdom are we letting run our life? What kind of kingdom are we serving? What way are we taking, the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb? If we want the answer to that question, I think the first place for us to look is at what's being produced out of our life. Is it the things that we talked about, the peace, the mercy, the reason, the righteousness, or is it disorder and all kinds of evil practices? For answer that question honestly and we're kind of discontent with the answer, I think there's just one thing we need to do and John tells us exactly what it is in that description of the lamb, the way of the lamb. There's a bunch of people there with him who stand blameless before him and who are on his side and who are with him. And John describes them as a people who follow the lamb wherever he goes. It really is that simple. That if we want wisdom, godly wisdom to run our life, if we want our life to produce the things that we have been talking about, it really does come down to one thing. It's fixing our eyes on the lamb and it's following him wherever he goes. It's getting as close as we possibly can to him, to spend time with him, to go where he goes, to do what he does and embody what he embodies. That's all we're left to do. Put our eyes to Jesus and follow him wherever he goes. When we do that, our motivations change. When our motivations change, what comes out of our life changes. And as we trace that back to its very starting point, we can with confidence say, I am not embracing the way of the dragon, I'm embracing the way of the lamb. I am not embracing wisdom of the world, I'm embracing wisdom that represents this kingdom that Jesus paid such a high price so that I could be a part of. So as you think about that and as you walk out into your week this week, there will be lots of opportunities for us to choose what wisdom to live under. I think it requires a lot of honesty on our part and some significant shifts, but I'm so excited for the harvest of righteousness that Jesus promises will come out of our life when we fix our eyes on the lamb and follow him where he goes. Would you pray with me and we'll wrap up. Jesus, thank you for not... Thank you for uh, being true to what you say 
true to your promises, that you are not interested in hiding your wisdom from us. Lord, as I've been reading Proverbs, you just made it so clear that wisdom, as you've personified as this woman, she's everywhere, yelling at the top of her lungs, I'm here, come find me, I'm right here. So God, thanks for not like hiding from us, but Lord, may we have the eyes to see exactly what you've put in front of us. God, may we never get lulled into this acceptance, this settling for conventional wisdom or worldly wisdom, but instead, Lord, may we recognize it for what it is. It's a monster. We will not have it. And instead, that we would recognize how beautiful, how countercultural, but how worthwhile your wisdom is. Let us always look to you. Let us always follow you. Let us Use every ounce of strength that we have to get as close to you as possible because that is all we need. Everything else is produced from that point. God, we need your wisdom. We need your wisdom in this world in which we live, our families, our marriages, our churches. We need your wisdom. So God, we pray you'd make it clear to us today. We love you and we thank you. In your awesome name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.